What's up, demigods? Welcome back to Camp Half Pod. The intro rhymes, Condra. It's it's a lot on your mouth, I can see. Welcome back to the show where we recap the new Disney Plus Percy Jackson and the Olympians television show. This is a podcast. My name is Tyler. I'm Condra. We're the amateur nerds. And we're here to talk about episode three. We visit a garden gnome emporium. We visit the garden gnome emporium. Exactly. Auntie M's garden gnome emporium, to be precise. Yes, but that's not in the title of the episode. No. So, yeah. So this is sort of the... Um, this the, is the first stop. This Well, this is the classic of any sort of road, like road trip story, or really any television show is... We've gotten the setup out of the way, and now we are doing the thing. This Much is, like Angela Bassett did the thing. <laughs> this is our first big stop to solidify the team before we get into the really hard stuff. I'm not, I'm not even talking about the stop. I'm talking about the journey, right, Connor? It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. No, this show, it's a quest. It's very much about the destination. <laughs> I think you'll yeah. find it's about the friends they made along the way. There's a lot of discussion about <laughs> friendship and who are friends in this episode, so we're going to get to all that. I'm talking about the structure of storytelling. Yes, when, when I know. You get, when yeah. you get into the second or third episode of a show, it's like, okay, now we're now we're doing it. Now we're letting the characters, you know, talk about their back, like talk about their backstory and talk to each other, and things start to come to a head that are not just exposition, but it's actually letting the things play out. I'm thinking a lot about like the last of us TV show from early 2023, where it took two episodes for Joel and Ellie to sort of set out where they were going. Then you had this other like Nick Offerman episode where, where you had this sort of side story and then you get in and you actually have the characters on the road, having experiences together, conflicts coming up. It can feel like it's filler, but it's not. This is where the meat of the show actually is so if, if it feels like nothing happened in this episode i hope you don't feel like that or that no one listening feels like man this one was boring because this is what the show is this is the premise that we want this is percy and annabeth and grover developing as characters and as friends i was saying the same things as you like this is i know you were just cutting ahead to the medusa stuff and i wanted to, i wanted us to get there but no i like this is the foundation of their friend this is where we see friendships happening this is where they're themselves like they're not being told what they are they're figuring it out for themselves yeah i think that's a great way to put it and that's what quests are all about indeed so the episode actually starts we're not on the quest yet we're We're in a we're we're in a creepy attic where percy where percy has to go ask the oracle for help and you know the attic wasn't as spooky or eclectic as Maybe I had dreamed it would be. It's very reminiscent of the attic from Haunted Mansion, if anything. <laughs> like the ride? Or the Muppets Haunted Mansion. Like, there's no beating heart bride stuff, but I... like, other than that, it's just in a random. Like, the attic it's a in the cramped. book. The attic in the book has, like, oh, there's this weird shield, and oh, there's this, like, is that a piece of the mast? Yeah, like... it's a place to put Easter eggs, and there weren't really any Easter eggs no. in this attic, which is fair. It just. Get it over with. The Oracle is like this old woman sitting in a chair. She is basically nothing. 
She's withered away, but it's the or the life force of the Oracle is still forcing her to exist, where she is well past her normal existence. Yeah, she's not really a human who eats and breathes, but she spits out a green gas, which takes the shape of... Gabe? Gabe Ugliani? Ugliano. Ugliano, which is a creative name choice. We knew that in the last <laughs> last week as but well. But I just saw it on the IMDb today. Ah. <laughs> and Gabe, in his sort of New York accent, says... The prophecy. The prophecy, which I don't remember word for word, and I don't know how Percy remembers it either. It's part of his special hero brain. <laughs> I'd always... I, yeah, my, my thought was always with these prophecy things, like, what if you forget part of it? And you're like, like nobody has a pen and they're writing it down. <laughs> I do appreciate that later on in like the the Percy Jackson universe that does like they do actually <laughs> write some of them down. Um, but there was no fanfare of like, oh well, oh right, Percy, you got to go up and talk to the Oracle, and yeah. then he gets down and says, "This is what the Oracle says." They actually cut the Oracle into two separate parts, mm-hmm. so it's sort of intercut, and the 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 line about betrayal and not getting what you want in the end is actually saved for a sort of sting two minutes after he chooses whom he wants to go on the quest with. Yeah. So that was fun. Yeah, no, I thought it was a... I didn't love that it was Gabe giving it because I think like a creepy, breathy old woman voice suits the, 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 the Oracle a little better. Yeah, I mean, if the special effect was a little bit more than like... He's green. A green, yeah, a green Gabe who exists in like a two-dimensional space on a patch of smoke. I I mean, I'm kind of giving them the benefit of, of the doubt here because it's like, if you want to see like a spooky zombie talk in, in a random voice, there's a million things that you can watch that have that. Percy Jackson's all about putting like an ironic modern twist on these things. That's true. And so like, if that was the idea you had, great. It's not that good but it's fine yeah it makes for a little laugh in the moment and it's a a twist for people like us who are expecting something yeah and maybe too it will clue into how gabe's ending will come like if gabe is this force of foreboding and fear for percy like maybe that taps into his like maybe it's taking the form of someone who you wouldn't want to hear from or something like there's something tied in psychologically to him seeing gabe not that they explored that at all, but I'm like still trying to <laughs> rationalize how we're going to get from where we were in episode one with Gabe to the end of the show with Gabe. Maybe he just had an extra thing in his contract saying that he was going to appear in two episodes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, either way, there, there, yeah, maybe there's something there about like the, the Oracle doesn't speak English or something. So they have to like use the voice of someone. But that's the the point of the Oracle's body, like the host. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. So Percy leaves and then he has to choose who goes on his quest with him. There's a selection ceremony where a bunch of heroes are standing around the offering pit in the dining hall. Yeah, there's sort of this pillared area, kind of like a mini coliseum, except Greek. And Chiron is like, oh, a quest is important and who you take with you is like... These are the best heroes to pick from. And Percy, like, interrupts him. He's like, Annabeth. We're here because we're the best of the best of the best, sir. Yeah. (laughs) With honors. And (laughs) 
Percy picks Annabeth and Chiron's like, right don't away. you want me to list names? And he's like, no. <laughs> I don't need that. I know who I want. <laughs> yeah. And they actually come up with a, this whole process is very interesting because it's obviously a bit different from the book where it's kind of like, it builds up and everyone kind of knows it's going to be Percy and Annabeth and Grover. Yeah. But here it's like, all right, I, like, here's why I choose these people. Mm-hmm. And he originally says, well, if I need someone who's going to be willing to sacrifice me in order to benefit the quest, I don't want someone like Luke who's going to be, you know, try to defend me because I'm smaller and he's my friend. I want someone who's going to be willing to sacrifice the personal relationship to do what's best for the universe. Yeah. Which is what he claims. Yeah. And honestly, both like both sides of it make sense. Like his lie to Chiron about why he chooses Annabeth makes sense. And then later on when it's revealed that. Because he, he doesn't think Annabeth is going to be his friend. So yeah. that there's no risk of her betraying him. He knows someone's going to betray him. So it's like a keep your enemies closer type thing. Like mm-hmm. hedge my bets on who's going to betray me. Which is a lot to think about as a 12 year old. <laughs> you should ever think about that. I, I think about that from time to time. I'm like, man. Percy's 12. I mean, everyone betrays you when you're 12 years Absolutely. old. Absolutely. Your parents betray you by telling you that you need to brush your teeth. Your friends betray you by being slightly better at baseball than you. But we then cut to Grover, who is scooping horse poop, talking to the uh, horse. Winged horse poop. Is the black horse that he's... I didn't know if that one was also winged. They were all winged, yeah. Okay. Which, yeah, I... I no, it's sort of stated that there are winged horses oh, at yeah. Camp Half-Blood and that Percy later ends up befriending a winged horse. But mm-hmm. I don't know if we're supposed to sort of interpret anything other than just like, here's the Pope in a pool. Yeah. Well, which is a storytelling technique where you give a character something interesting to do while dialogue or exposition is given. We've talked about this on the pod before. Yeah, but maybe people are listening for Percy and, Percy not-, and not High School Musical 2 or whatever. I don't know why. So uh, Grover is scooping horse poop because he's in Dionysus trouble. Basically, is mad at him. <laughs> and I think this gets to a point that like is not really it hasn't been explored yet. But Dionysus canonically kind of rallies the satyrs and the nymphs and the dryads and the naiads, or not so much the naiads, but the dryads, as like I am a god of nature and chaos. He kind of takes not a full equivalency to Pan, which we've not had Pan discussed yet in this show. So maybe that will come along later. The discussion of Pan and like why Uncle Ferdinand was on a quest and why Grover wants to be on quests and things. But Dionysus's relationship with the satyrs are not healthy. It's a fear-based. <laughs> <laughs> well, the idea of Dionysus as being a god and his... His his deityness domain. <laughs> well, his his provenance as sort of a person who connects the god world Olympus to this mythical world, which is you know on the mortal realm, is has not really been talked about. We've just seen Dionysus as this sort of like drinking diet coke. Yeah, laid back, a little sassy guy. He you don't we don't get the full breadth of his importance or power. Yeah. But yeah, he is sort of connected to satyrs specifically in the mythology as well. So there, there is definitely something there. Not really worth spending much more time on, I suppose. So Grover Percy, is chosen yep, by Percy. Because 
he fully trusts him. He's his best friend and knows that he'll always be on his side. And Which I find interesting because I don't know if we ever got that like total reconciliation between the characters in the last episode. I think Percy seeing him tell, like getting told by Grover of his mom's survival was yeah. like, a, oh, okay. he's really here for me kind of yeah. thing. Like where Chiron and Dionysus are lying. I forgot face. that that last moment happened in the episode. Yeah, kind of the important reveal. All right, and so he he basically, he trusts Grover completely. But it was interesting because he, he had previously been betrayed by Grover. Mm-hmm. But then he realized it was all for his own safety. So they've sort of gone over that relationship hurdle. And throughout the episode, Percy has this sort of idea that Grover's always on my side. And he always thinks it's him and Grover versus Annabeth, where we see over time that Grover's really trying to play the middleman between the two of them. Mm-hmm. The middle satyr, I should say. Yeah. Be respectful, <laughs> Tyler. <laughs> so they set out on their quest. Um, well, Luke gives Percy the, the, the wing- winged shoes. As a gift from Hermes. Which have a pretty cool special effect where the laces of the shoes become the wings. Yeah, yeah, it is a nice effect. They're like high top red converses and the, the white laces become the wings. And it is one of the stronger effects of the episode. And then... You know, Percy has $200 and some golden drachmas. They get on a cab. Go don't to the... confuse them. <laughs> yeah, don't get them. They're not Chuck E. Cheese tokens. And they get in the cab to go to the Port Authority, Authority bus terminal. And then they get on a bus. They can't fly. Nope. As revealed, because Percy's like, wow, way to like make us feel unimportant. Why couldn't have they like gotten plane tickets? And everyone, they both look at him and they're like, obviously you can't fly. <laughs> unless you have winged shoes on well no even that's like so that's like a book thing but they actually have that discussion like after he learns that he's like oh shoot maybe i shouldn't be the one to wear the winged shoes then because how much of that that's why grover ends up wearing them and they don't really explore that here but like there actually is discussion <laughs> about the winged shoes and like well, so the bus the bus is twofold. It's keeping them safe from Zeus, and it's because they're sitting next to the the bathroom, the bathroom stall in the bus. They're sort of covered in scent. But from when monsters. they when they stop at a rest stop, Annabeth notices one of the Furies, Electo, Electo, Mrs. Dodds, is following them around, and so we get this sort of suspenseful scene where Annabeth turns invisible and is talking to Mrs. Dodds. I was like, why doesn't she just like secretly stab her? Right now, while yeah. you're invisible, like yeah, I is that an honor thing? Like, oh, that's that's not the Athena way. <laughs> Maybe because <laughs> they totally they totally honor Medusa by not using invisibility as a trick there, but that's for later in the episode. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's just because you know it's more interesting to have a dialogue scene than just like a oh, there's a monster there, stab, and now it's dead. Like it builds character for the show. Yeah, it has themes. <laughs> but Electo is actually trying to use Annabeth and and get her to give up Percy, make the quest easier, and Electo will help Annabeth on her quest. Yeah, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But Annabeth says no, 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 and then they escape throughout the back window of the bus. Another fury flies in, but Annabeth throws a knife at it and kills it yep. in one shot. Pretty good aim on her part. Uh, the other Fury can't get through the the crowd of people on the bus who are trying to get escape out the front door. So 
Percy, Annabeth, and Grover end up in the woods on a satyr path. And this is sort of the vibe of Percy Jackson is like, they get kids walking through the woods. They get stopped by a monster and then get completely derailed (laughs) and get stuck in another monster's path. And this is very fantasy. I mean, it's Lord of the Rings. Yeah. One thing leads to another. And their thing that they're being led to is the sweet scent of cheeseburgers. Yeah, that that's a classic book vibe. Like, yeah, yeah. The funny thing is, though, they didn't explore that Grover wouldn't actually eat the cheeseburger. He's like, I just smell cheeseburgers and that's weird. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't remember exactly in the book, like, if Medusa's gnome garden is, like, literally on the satyr path, as in it's, like, it's just a random place in the woods. Or if it's, like, sort of connected to the human world, but sort sort of of in between. Yeah, so my memory of it is they they actually get off. The bus is driving when the Furies decide to attack. So the bus pulls over because of an emergency alarm. And they just start walking. Yeah. And they, like, walk by this, like, decrepit gas station. And then they're like, oh, shoot, we should kind of get off the beaten path even more so. And then they stumble into... Auntie M's uh, Garden yeah, Gnome like Emporium. A, like a back highway. Yeah. You know, state road instead of an interstate type thing. Yeah. Roads where nobody drives. So that's more the vibe. So like, I, I guess it makes sense. It's very, honestly, it's more reminiscent of book three, The Titan's Curse, of this series than... You're, you're going into nitty gritties that I don't have here. I know. Uh, but... We see we see them throughout the the book series stumble go, into go these weird place. places yeah. that they're like, oh, I'm trying to get off the beaten path path to hide my scent, but also I'm still stumbling into someone else's. Usually, domain. usually it's either like buried away from human sight, so it's just like completely in the mythic world, or it's sort of hiding in plain sight, like the Lotus Eaters yes. casino. Yes. Which but, we'll get. But this is sort of a middle ground of like, a, it's in the human world, like a human could show up. Yeah. But and also, buy a statue. But also, it's mostly just for the mythic yeah. side of things. Yeah. So, Auntie Anne's Garden Gnome Emporium. Well, yeah. So, they sort of they sort of walk up on this place and they go, oh, shoot, this looks bad. Auntie M probably stands for Medusa. Which is so far from the book, which is frustrating because it, like... In the book, they're scared and hungry, and they just kind of stumble into this place, and they're like, oh, maybe there's, like, this, like, little food section in it, and they're like, maybe we can get some food and, like, get on our way, and they're befriended by this seemingly blind woman, or her face is veiled, and they get have a nice chat with her. There's no talk of mythic, but they're like, wow, these statues are, like, really detailed and elaborate, and she's like, yeah. I would love to have you guys pose for a picture. I think you guys would make amazing statues kind of thing. And it isn't until they're just about, like, she's just about to take her veil off that Annabeth like, realizes. Oh, shoot, it's Medusa. Yeah. So, like, there's this delay in their, like, just, like, the false sense of comfort. So. Yeah, you say it's frustrating. I think this is, I think this is a pretty good adaptation of what we're going for here. I think for one thing, it's definitely harder visually in the visual medium to be like, Look at these statues. Like, it's just a fun statue place that's totally normal. Yeah, I think... (laughs) It's hard to pull that off. Yeah, I think they went for some of the more fantastic characters or creatures for these statues. Like, when we're looking, we see a cyclops at one point, and it's like, 
I Cyclops think, are so much bigger than that. I think what you're saying is sort of a book version of this story where it's like Percy and Annabeth and Grover are out in the real world. They're not sure what to be wary of. There's the real world dangers of, you know, 12 year olds getting in buses and trusting adults and, you know, being out in the world. And then there's also the monster stuff on top of that. And they're sort of realizing that the, there's more to the world than meets the eye, right? Mm-hmm. They stumble into this place. They think someone's helping them. And it's actually a monster who's trying to hurt them. And as like a, a first experience in an adventure that works mm-hmm. in the book, especially in the the very nascent version of the Ricky Riordan storytelling, which is in the Lightning Thief book where, where it's like, here's how this monster would be if it was in our modern real world. If Medusa yeah. was in America, she'd run this random statue garden that's a, you know, a highway tourist trap, literally, yeah, literally. type deal. Yeah. And I can see, you know, as sort of the second iteration of this story in the visual medium, them wanting to go in a different direction And with I it. do like this version too, because I think it taps on the Sally's story of who's a monster and who's a hero. Yes. I think it taps into that very well. I think it strengthened Percy and Annabeth's trust much more quickly. You don't need to have as many little scenarios where they're building trust and you can have a bigger one, which makes sense for this uh, episodic nature. But there's something silly about Annabeth not catching on (laughs) to its Medusa until right before they get frozen. Because she says something really silly of like, I always have such a hard time getting their faces right. And she's like, wait a second. That's what's been bothering me this whole time. All these statues look terrified. I know who she is now. (laughs) And I like that. Like, Annabeth being 12, too. Yeah. There's a a larger conversation to be had about Annabeth's characterization so far. She's very stoic. Yeah. There's the Annabeth character, like, you know, for us, we're going into this show with a very preconceived notion of what these characters are supposed to be. And we know that Annabeth is a broad and deep character that we can come to love and enjoy. I don't know if the show version has necessarily given her that much to do. She's a little bossy Mm -hmm. for Percy. She seems like she's wise and has experience as a fighter. Although we haven't really like seen much evidence of that. Yeah. Um, you know, she helped in the capture the flag. She's wise in the general sense that, she thinks a little bit more about the plan, but she doesn't necessarily have the like the connective tissue yet. And I think we kind of see that in the book, too. To be fair, we don't really get like good other than the like you draw when you sleep and like she gets littler moments in the first book. It's the second book in Sea of Monsters that she really comes to life. So I'll be curious if the show continues past the first season, if we see Annabeth actually get those funny moments, get those heartfelt. Yeah, I'm thinking the actor is probably talented. Yeah. And maybe she was told to play things a little stoic and a little... um, Reserved. Reserved. But I feel like Percy's nailing such a, a good line of like, being a little goofy and also hitting his emotional beats. And Annabeth feels like she's just there and she's not like the reason I'm tuning into the show at this point. Which 
I think people could argue is the case for the book. So I think we're skirting that line, but it's just we know Annabeth more than the first three episodes of a new show. Like, we just ha- know her better. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm willing to give the show time, but I'm worried that she's not going to pan out. Yeah. I mean, they ca- they went through a hundred different group options for the the three of them. <laughs> there were there were literally that many Percy Grovers and Annabeth they were considering, and then these three were the finals out of all yeah. the possible options. So, I think our actor for Grover's doing a pretty good job. He definitely gives the vibe of like I'm old. I'm actually older mm-hmm. than the rest of you, and I'm I'm panicky still though, yeah. and. But he has the good chemistry with yeah. Percy, and he has the sort of background wisdom that Annabeth has. And, you know, he sings his little song about how we consensus. should all get along, the consensus song, Super which I cute. don't know if that's from the book it's or not. It's not, and I like it. All right. <laughs> it's, it, I thought it was a great character touch, because Grover is, he's an outsider to the the demigod thing, so I think it worked, I think it worked in his favor. But yeah, we get, so let's get back to Medusa's lair. So she leaves out food for them and then is making them more food. Well, there's this idea of the the heroes have to either choose between should we try to fight off this fury or should we trust Medusa? And right, the fury's not going to mess with Medusa for obvious reasons. Yeah. So should we trust Medusa and go in with her or be like, monster, monster, which one's better either way? Like, And they're personal connections via their parents to Medusa kind of guide them into talking to Medusa. First and foremost, Percy's connection with his mother who told him (laughs) the story from sort of Medusa's point of view. Yeah. That again, who's a hero and who's a monster, which I think is such a, a strong direction for the show to choose. Unlike the surprise, it's Medusa. Who's all of a sudden a monster that you have to kill. Yeah. It's a situation where it's like, okay, we have to think about the humanity of every single person that we run into. And this gets into the larger conversation about the humanity of the gods and the humanity of the monsters and right the infallibility of the gods, which I think is the really interesting part of Greek mythology, mm-hmm. right? If the gods are, I mean, and, and all... Religion. Religions have this. If the gods are all powerful and always right, how come they're sometimes they're whiny and, and petulant? Yeah. Hearing Medusa's side of her curse slash gift. Yeah, and that was that was another great way of saying it. Like, it's a gift. No, it's a curse. Like a just a a very positive way of introducing these concepts mm-hmm. to children. Yeah, absolutely. And Annabeth is taken aback by Medusa's thought process, but she still doesn't trust her. Percy then has another conversation with Medusa on his own about his mother and... We're like sisters. We were both loved by a monster. I.e. Poseidon. Yeah. Who then sort of abandoned us. Yeah. Speaking of which, there's also this idea that Medusa expresses where... Poseidon was the first person who whom she felt really saw her. Mm-hmm. And then the curse from Athena was that no one would get to see her again. Now, I'm sure that's probably been expressed somewhere in a version of the story. But it's just nice to have a character in a show express that for themselves. Yeah. 
that's like the theme that that's that's the theme of the story that they've chosen to interpret here in this version of the mm-hmm. tale. And then Medusa chooses. Well, no, I don't. Percy, Annabeth, and Grover choose violence. Yeah, it's it's a very it's a very interesting conflict. Is like I I saw a version of this episode playing out where they don't kill Medusa, and they go, hmm, that was weird. We had this sort of spiritual connection we had we had this sort of almost violent like this tremulous relationship with a person but then we realized hmm, maybe the person we thought the bad guy from the beginning wasn't actually the bad guy and that could be like a foreshadowing to the haiti stuff yeah but but i think it still did that foreshadowing definitely without needing to like literally do it yeah and i think percy showing his impetulance is kind of like killing Medusa is really important to the overall plot. (laughs) So they couldn't not kill Medusa. Yeah. So Medusa offers to off Annabeth and Grover so that Percy can go save his mother. And and, he freaks out a little bit. Yeah. And then it immediately goes into like, Oh, she's after us. And they, they hide in her basement where there's a bunch of statues of the statues. She can't really sell to the people. (laughs) Like, cause there's like cops. Holding it looks guns. like the final treasure room and national treasure mixed with the statue garden from the Chronicles of Narnia. Yes. <laughs> you combine those two things, you've got Medusa's basement. But they've also got like the oil flame the fire, ramp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> now I know what you meant by national natural treasure. I'm like, it's just the fire. It's, well, it's just like a big cavernous underground room that there's no way would exist. But in this case, it's mythic. So sure. It probably does. It might be part of the labyrinth. For That's all what I was going to say. It'd be cool if they were like, it's connected to the labyrinth. I mean, most of those spaces are so. In, in the Percy Jackson world. Yes. Yeah. Um, And yeah, they start like running through people and monsters that are statues and their their original plan is Grover's going to distract being airborne and Percy and Annabeth will somehow stop Medusa, but Grover says Maya too quickly. Yeah, he can't really control the shoes, so he just goes flying off and then Percy's being sort of tempted by Medusa here. And and this is the the fun part of the Medusa lore. She's not some blabbling monster who just you know chases after you she sort of is a temptress yes yeah she um she was an elite woman before getting turned and i really want to i really want to praise the actress here jessica parker kennedy for her portrayal as medusa i mean when she's got the hat on and the little veil over her eyes she's beautiful like she's she's (laughs) the appeal of medusa like that's it like and what, what they do very cleverly here is they they show a lot of her teeth and her smile and they're they're like they're drawing a little bit too much attention to it where you're like that smile actually looks creepy the way she's doing it like it sticks out like a little like her teeth stick out a little too far and you're like i can see how that's weird and you can see sort of like the snake slightly moving in the back of and her hair sometimes you can hear the slight hissing sound like which i was part of the book was like wait what is this constant hissing noise that we hear but i like any time a, a version of medusa is like no the, the snakes are just like hair yeah they almost look like dreadlocks yeah they're um, not cognizant <laughs> they're not and they're not sticking straight, straight up out, out of yeah them. <laughs> yeah it's not beetlejuice but what kinda. i but, but what i do want is for them to look like hair until she goes Bleh! and then they all stick up straight <laughs> Well, we didn't get that, so maybe it would have. <laughs> which the show didn't do, which I respected, even if I kind of wanted. <laughs> we got that with the Uma Thurman version, yeah. so... Yeah, exactly. 
I also appreciated that it didn't feel like it broke any rules of the universe. Like, Percy's sword glowed, and that gave his spot away, but he kept his eyes shut, and she tried to talk him into opening his eyes and giving up, and it was... There was no excess magic. Like, that's not Medusa's character. Yeah. They use Annabeth's hat to turn Medusa invisible so that Percy can look at where he's swinging. Yeah. Quote, unquote. And then they cut off the head, and the head the head has the hat on it, so the head's invisible, so it's not any danger to anybody. And then they use the head to kill Electo the Fury so what? that they can leave, and they've defeated both of their monster enemies with some trickery, which is very clever. It's yeah. A, it's... Again, this is not what we saw in the book. Yeah. But the, you know, killing two birds with one stone, stone? <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> is an effective and it's a clever use of the the setup here. Absolutely. Yeah, cuz the the killing of Electo here is a little jarring. It's pretty cool like a pretty cool special effect to like have Yeah, she's flying, have her and, flying then she down just... and then turns a stone and yeah. drop like a lead balloon. Or stone. A stone balloon. Stone fury. (laughs) And then they use this, they use this setup to establish the relationship between the characters, which is exactly what you want. You want Percy to be like, well, I don't trust you, Annabeth, because I was told that somebody was going to betray me. And Annabeth be like, well, I don't trust you, Percy, because you're only trying to save your mother and not actually finish the quest. And Grover's like the, why is everybody fighting? Yeah. And they realized that they both were given the opportunity to betray each other, but chose not to, which only affirms their friendship. The so, friendship they made along the way. So yeah, in terms of a you know a TV episode, it's like it's pretty you solid. Were, you were met with two challenges, you overcame the challenges, and your friendship leveled up. Yeah, and this is the highest rated episode so far on IMDb. I think the Medusa stuff is really strong. The I, dialogue yeah. and the tension, where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, is she gonna? She's gonna turn on them. Yeah. All of a sudden, and also the Indiana Jones music throughout <laughs> the entire episode was good. If I had any complaint, it would be that it seems like they turned to violence against Medusa a little too soon, and that I would have really liked to see the conversation go downhill and like turn into an argument a little bit faster. Yeah. Or a little bit slower, even I should say. But we got a lot of places to be. We got yeah. a lot of a lot of stuff to f- do, a lot of monsters to encounter, and Medusa's only the first stop. So I think I think pacing wise, yeah, it's Trenton yet. Yeah, they kept <laughs> saying that all episode, which is really funny. Like, is that there's measure of distance? <laughs> but yeah, it's it was a good episode. I thought Medusa was a very like modern. The modernization of the Percy Jackson story, even in its subtle ways of this monster hero concept, I think worked well. And I think, I think the trio is already set up to be very strong. Like we're we're looking good for our trio. Yeah, no, I'm I'm hopeful that the Annabeth stuff gets to be a little bit more character fun. I was actually watching a video of Rick talking about the casting of Annabeth and how they cast a black woman and how he did not write it as a black woman, so. He had to completely not start from scratch, but reconsider Annabeth's character through the lens of a black woman. How how, how is Annabeth described in the book? She's blonde hair, gray eyes, 
short they, at the time she's taller than Percy, but then Percy becomes taller than her. She's she's your kind of unfortunately like stereotypical blonde white girl. Okay. With gray eyes. So there this there's this thing that happens in adaptations where you get a sort of sassy or know-it-all character who sometimes is a fiery redhead mm-hmm. that then gets recast as a young black girl. And this happens in the Good Omens show, actually. Oh, yeah. The the female friend in um, the young boys yep. friend group in the new adaptation is played by a, a young black girl. So, and they do it with Hermione in the Cursed Child play yeah. as well. Although play casting, I don't. Yeah, I don't play give as much flack diff- to. Yeah, different. Um, <laughs> but Rick was saying that he was very cognizant. He could not write from that standpoint. So he brought in other black female writers to help with Annabeth's character. And knowing what Rick has done over the years with his yeah, to ex- to efforts to diversify and include, yeah. and include, I have hopes. Like, yeah. I, I'm, I trust Rick more than almost any other author. Because I know he puts his he puts work into it. He's not yeah. just doing it for the sake of brownie points. Like, yeah, it's meaningful. And if they picked this person as Annabeth, there was a reason. And yeah, and it it's gonna work out. Like, yeah. it's not the sassy black lady with some attitude kind of thing. <laughs> like Taylor in High School Musical. Like Taylor in High School Musical. <laughs> like, yeah, no, it's not that. We're we're getting something for a reason here. And and if the story is like she's this stoic and reserved person because this is how she was taught or forced to be in order to seem more palatable to the people around her, and then over time she gets to express herself, while a little um basic for a a storyline about a young woman specifically a young black woman, that is a character storyline that mm-hmm. Annabeth could have and. I mean, to be fair, we kind of saw that in the books with this white blonde version of Annabeth because she's rectif- she's dealing with the trauma of having to leave her father who didn't want her at the age of seven yeah. and her a stepmother and that she didn't was hardened want her. too early. Yeah. Yeah. Battle. Battle born. Yeah. So it's interesting to see this transformation in yeah. the character's identity. I yeah, I, and I don't see a ton of difference in the characterization of Annabeth from the book to the show. Like, changing the skin color of a character doesn't have to change anything. No. But it is important to make sure that you're acknowledging that people have backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all here for it. We have one more thing to talk about for this here episode, and that is what Percy does with the head. Oh, yes. He... he- Ships it to Olympus. Using Hermes Express shipping. And then we get a fun little sort of end of the episode sting where we go to the Empire State Building. And climb up to the 600th floor. On the the elevator. With Hermes. With Hermes, who's holding a box. With a smirk on his face like he knows what's up. And humming along to Christopher Cross, Arthur's theme. And it's played by Lin-Manuel Miranda. So him saying... New York City. Like, there's a Hamilton reference there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's saying New York City, and he's Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> I think this casting works well for, like, Hermes being, like, a little bad father. Like, he's a bad father. <laughs> he's kind of a jerk, but also but a little t- bit caring. He can caring. talk fast. He can talk fast. <laughs> he cares sometimes. 
and he's efficient and, and he's prolific <laughs> and yeah, exactly. <laughs> no george and martha though which is a bit of a bummer but we'll get george and martha eventually the snakes on his catechist okay fair yeah who are arguably some of my favorite characters in the whole series <laughs> But yeah, and the choice of the the New York the Christopher Cross song the, yeah. was fun, and then if you that get being the lost credit, between the, the moon, moon and New York, York City, there this idea of New York City connecting to the the moon, the the, the, the space space or the world beyond something supernatural, and as if it's a portal of some kind. It's a little hackneyed. It's probably the the cheapest song that they could get. But I liked it. <laughs> but I liked it because I like Christopher Cross. Anyway, well. I think that's it. Yeah. We're gonna keep on keeping on with this. I think this episode made me more excited about the show than I was from the previous two episodes. I agree. So, till next time. You can find us on Instagram at Amateur Nerds. Or tweet, uh, not tweet at us, Tumblr at us at Wildcat Minute. I mean, if you want to tweet at us, I just don't go on Twitter anymore. (laughs) You can also send us an email to AmateurNerdsPresent at gmail.com. Yeah, let us know who your favorite Medusa is. Mm. It's a lot to choose from there because you got Clash of the Titans Medusa. You got there's there's Dusa from the video game Hades. There's... She's a classic. There's the new oh what's her first name? There's a Bur- uh the author's last name is Burton. It's just called Medusa. It's an illustrated yeah. novel. That one's a really cool retelling too. So there's lot there's lots of Medusas to choose from. Yeah. There's Uma Thurman. There's Uma Thurman. <laughs> I haven't had pa- uh, Fallout Boy stuck in my head this entire time. <laughs> S- special, nope. I made the. I'm. If you like our logo, I made it very poorly <laughs> in an hour. <laughs> and we don't have theme music, but if the, we did have theme music, it'd be the only joke that I like from the original Logan Lerman version of the movie, where they set out on their quest and they're listening to "Highway to Hell" by ACDC. Uh. <laughs> or I was gonna say it's not the the Nathan Fillion Firefly joke, but that's in the second one. That's in the second one. That's so fair. <laughs> that's fair. Well, I've been Condra, and I've been Tyler. We'll see you next time in St. Louis to find out what happens to our trio of heroes. Bye.